0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Paul at Athens, A Few People Believed. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May 29, 2011. In the epistle for this week, we read the words of 1 Peter 3.15, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And in the book of Acts, the reading for this week, the physician Luke tells how the apostle Paul did exactly this. The greatest persecutor of the church became its greatest propagator traveling some 10,000 miles to spread the good news of Jesus. This week finds Paul in Athens, one of the oldest cities in the world, with a history dated back 5,000 years before Paul's day. Not everyone was eager to hear Paul's message, not by a long shot. After a riot erupted in Thessalonica, Paul's companions spirited him away to Berea, 50 miles to the southwest. But the agitators hounded him even there, stirring up the crowds. His partners then took Paul to the coast, where he sailed 200 miles down the shoreline of the Aegean Sea and landed at Athens. In Athens, Paul gave a reason for the hope that was in him to three different audiences. He started by doing what he always did. Whenever Paul entered a city, writes Luke, as usual, he went to the local synagogue, Acts 14.1. He did this in Solomus, city in Antioch, Iconium, Berea, Corinth, and Ephesus. When he entered Thessalonica, says Luke, he went to a synagogue as was his custom, 17.2. And so when he came ashore in Athens, Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, Acts 17.17. For the first few decades after Jesus, the emerging Christian movement was seen as a Jewish sect by the Roman authorities. Jesus was a Jew, of course, as were his first disciples, and as was the rabbinically trained Paul. In synagogue after synagogue, Paul argued that this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Whereas today some people try to convert Jews into Christians, in those early decades the question was the opposite. Could a Gentile join the Jewish Jesus movement? Peter and company were shocked when in Acts 10 and 11 the Jewish believers conceded that, quote, God has even granted the Gentiles repentance unto life. Paul then moved from the Jewish synagogue to the Greek marketplace. Day by day, writes Luke, he gave a reason for his hope to quote, those who happened to be there. Five hundred years before Paul, the Athenian Agora was the center of civic life. In addition to residences, it contained religious temples, law courts, government magistrates, the city council, and economic commerce. In Paul's day, it would have included small shopkeepers. Since 1931, the Athenian Agora has been excavated by the American School of Classical Studies at Athens. In the Agora, Paul engaged a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who ridiculed him as a spermo or a seed picker. Translators struggle to make sense of this slang word. A word perhaps originally used of birds picking up grain, then of scrap collectors searching for junk and then maybe extended to those who snapped up ideas of others and peddled them as their own without understanding them. And finally, it probably meant any bum or 'er ne'er-do-well. The slur seems to have derided Paul as a bum, a plagiarist, or a poser. Whatever the meaning, Paul's audience was not impressed when he preached about Jesus and the resurrection. In their view, he advocated inferior foreign gods. After the Agora, Paul went to a meeting of the Areopagus. The Areopagus was both a place and a group. It's a small rocky hill northwest of the Acropolis in Athens. More importantly, the Areopagus was the most prestigious council of elders in the history of Athens so named because it met on that site. Dating back to the fifth and sixth centuries before the Common Era, the Areopagus consisted of nine chief magistrates who guided the city-state away from rule by a king to rule by an oligarchy, which in turn laid the foundations for Greece's eventual democracy. Across the centuries, the Areopagus changed so that by Paul's day, it was a place where matters of the criminal courts, law, philosophy, and politics were all adjudicated. The Intelligentsia invited Paul to preach his new teaching and his strange ideas. Paul met them on their own ground, quoting two poets, the Cretan poet Epimenides from 600 BCE, that in him we live and move and have our being. And then the Greek poet Aractus from 315 to 240 BCE, a Stoic of Cilicia, quoting his words, We are his children. Paul's message of the resurrection elicited a lukewarm response. Some people sneered, while others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. And so, says Luke, Paul left and went to Corinth. Luke ends the story by saying that a few people believed, including Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, a woman named Damaris, who is otherwise unmentioned in the New Testament, but is believed by some to have been the wife of Dionysius, and writes Luke, a number of other women Luke has already twice observed that many prominent women had joined the Jesus movement, Acts 17.9 and 17.12. At our worst, we Christians have isolated and insulated ourselves from our culture's mainstream. We can be inward-looking, self-absorbed, self-important, and cloistered. Instead of engaging people at our contemporary synagogue Agora, or Areopagus. A pastor friend once described to me a parishioner whose child had gone to Christian schools for so long that he could barely function in the real world. And another pastor lamented to me that at his annual denominational meeting, the delegates were merely, quote, talking to themselves, end quote. But at our best, Christians have followed Paul's example of living, learning, and sharing the gospel in the marketplace of ideas, in bars and boardrooms, as well as in basilicas, in university lecture halls, as well as in church fellowship halls. In an outward, centrifugal movement modeled after Paul at the Areopagus, believers have engaged real people where they really live, work, and think in order to gain a hearing for their strange ideas about repentance, rebirth, and the resurrection. Paul's confidence for addressing the Areopagus rested upon two beliefs. First, as he told King Agrippa after he was arrested and accused of insanity, the message of the gospel and its events were, quote, not done in a corner, Acts 26, 26. In other words, they are matters of historical record and open to public debate, discourse, and inquiry for all honest seekers. For that reason, the Areopagus was the most natural and fitting of venues for Paul. Second, as Paul preached to the Athenians, he believed that God made the world and everything in it, and that every single person was God's offspring. In his mind, there's no person or sphere of influence outside of God's care and concern. All of so-called secular life, and not just the sacred realms, are spheres of God's loving presence, or at least potentially so. Law, literature, medicine, education, arts, business, government, science, quite literally anything and everything. And so Paul viewed the venerable Areopagus as just another place where the Lord of all creation had gone before him and was already present. Indeed, said Paul to the Athenians, he is not far from each one of us. Paul in Athens. For books this week, I review The Mind's Eye by Oliver Sacks. New York, Alfred A. Knopf, 2010, 263 pages. In his newest book, Oliver Sacks, Professor of Clinical Neurology and Psychiatry at Columbia University, explores how the brain processes vision, especially when it is faced with blindness much as he explored how the brain processes music in his 2008 book, Music Ophelia. As in his previous works, in much of the book, Sachs relates dozens of clinical anecdotes. For Sachs, his patients are not merely cases, but rather fellow human beings with fascinating stories to tell. And so these are informal, inherently fascinating, and deeply human case histories of his patients. In addition, he shares from letters that he's received, scientific studies, memoirs by blind people, the results of brain imaging techniques, and, in the longest chapter of the book, his personal journal that he kept when he himself suffered from ocular melanoma in his right eye. Lillian, for example, has alexia, or visual agnosia, She can recognize the tiniest letters on an eye doctor's chart and can even write, but she can't read words or music even though she's a famous pianist. Patricia lost the function of speech, but maintained perfect intellectual abilities. Other people suffer from a blind spot in one quadrant of the brain, or from object agnosia, in which although their visual acuity is normal, They can't recognize common objects, color, family, faces, etc. Sachs describes his own struggles with prosopagnosia, or face blindness, the subject of his book The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, and with topographical agnosia, or problems with identifying places, and so getting lost easily in a familiar place. In addition to the many clinical case studies, Sachs weaves into his story the history of neuroscience in its study of how the brain processes vision. He describes the various coping mechanisms that people and their brains develop to compensate for the many types of blindness. The good news, if there is any about blindness, is that the determination of patients and the dedication of therapists can result in remarkably resilient lives despite great loss. Sacks exudes great empathy and curiosity, and he never belittles or pities his patients. Even in cases of so-called deep blindness, people develop a wide variety of ways to maintain a rich interior visual life, thanks to the plasticity of the human brain. The author is Oliver Sacks. The title of the book, The Mind's Eye. For film this week, I review Of Gods and Men, from 2010, a movie from France. Based upon a true story, Of Gods and Men tells the story of eight French monks who lived their community life of liturgy, poverty, humility, and love in a remote Algerian village. They garden, tend bees, sell their honey in the local market, and offer rudimentary medical care to everyone who needs it. The Muslim villagers love them and invite them to their own parties. You are the branch on which we stand, says one Muslim woman. When Muslim fundamentalists murder a little girl, and then some Croatian workers, the government insists upon protecting the monks with military might. They refuse on principle. Then the jihadists come and want their medicine, which the monks don't refuse. With their lives clearly endangered by both the government and the jihadists, they must decide whether to stay or to leave, and why. Of Gods and Men won the Grand Jury Prize at the Cannes Film Festival, and was nominated for 11 César Awards, the French equivalent of the Oscars. The movie is in French, with English subtitles. A wonderful film that I highly recommend, Of Gods and Men. For poetry this week, we've posted a short poem by George MacDonald, George MacDonald lived from 1824 to 1905. The title of the poem, The Grace of Grace. Had I the grace to win the grace Of some old man in lore complete, My face would worship at his face, And I sit lowly at his feet. Had I the grace to win the grace of childhood, Loving shy, apart, the child should find a nearer place and teach me resting on my heart. Had I the grace to win the grace of maiden living all above, my soul would trample down the base that she might have a man to love. A grace I had no grace to win, knocked now at my half-open door, Ah, Lord of glory, come thou in. Thy grace divine is all and more. The Grace of Grace by George MacDonald. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 29th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.